Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast. Today, I have Karen McKercher, who is the CEO of 22 Group. She helps software sellers reduce contracting phase and close deals faster. I thought this was a topic that many of you would be interested in, particularly as most of you probably hate the whole piece of contracting dealing with procurement. So I thought we'd bring in an expert. Karen, welcome. Glad to be here, Marcus. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Thank you. Tell me, could you give us 60 seconds on your background, please? I could. I'd like to say I'm a recovering attorney, but I've been horribly unsuccessful in shaking the habit. So whether directly or tangentially, I've been um, working in the legal domain for about the past 20 plus years. Whether running my own firm or working for a larger firm, I've also been in-house counsel and CEO for a tech startup. I've also, in the last uh, seven years or so, before starting 22, I worked as outside counsel to in-house counsel of Fortune 500 companies. And what I did with them was uh, largely review technology purchases, so software, SaaS, sometimes some professional consulting. And uh, what I did was took that experience and flipped it, now sort of offering solutions through 22 to those software sellers so that we can help them get through that redlining and contracting process faster with the Fortune 500 um, and enterprise legal departments. Excellent. Okay. So when is the best time to start the contracting process? If I were a seller, I would start the contracting process sooner than most do. Most involve themselves as sort of working with the business teams and getting business team buy-in. And when it looks like you're going to be starting to get that buy-in, I'd really encourage uh, the seller to what we call stack the process. So getting both procurement, infosec, and legal processes started at the same time. That's one way to reduce. That's, That's actually a very excellent way to reduce the red lines is to start those other three processes earlier. Okay. And what happens if you don't? Well, if you don't, typically what happens is this becomes almost like a relay, right? So you go through procurement, procurement negotiates price with you. Then somebody pulls the InfoSec trigger. Actually, sometimes the InfoSec trigger process takes a little bit longer. The InfoSec team, generally speaking, particularly if you're handling data, which most software SaaS companies in particular are, they want to get in and review your security protocols and make sure that security of your software is sound. And that typically takes six weeks, I would say, at the minimum. So when you don't stack them, you've got six weeks for InfoSec. You've got anywhere from six weeks to six months for legal, depending on how protracted the negotiations are. And you have the procurement process as well. So stacking them can can significantly reduce time. So let's deal with each one separately. Okay. In terms of just good general best practice, in order to present your contract to InfoSec, what do you need to be aware of and what do they prioritize? So I should be clear that you're not really presenting your contract, but InfoSec is actually getting in and looking at your security processes, things like password policy and um and, and this is a little bit outside of my domain, except that I know that it can be a very frustrating part of the process. So they're looking at things like, you know, do you have 
certification, you know, SOC 2 certification? Do you have password protection policies? And what do those look like? And who can access your your software and when? And um, what happens if you have a breach? Those are the kinds of things that that your your InfoSec people are looking at. Okay. And then procurement? Procurement is generally speaking, negotiating pretty much the commercial term. So things like how many seats are we selling? Is there is there overage fees? What is the pricing? And they're really more concerned with, quite honestly, I think they're more concerned with price. That's definitely the case with uh, tactical procurement. Strategic procurement tends to have a bigger picture, longer term view. And what they're interested in is can they do business with this supplier? Can they be trusted? Do they have credibility? Are they reliable? So this is the logical transactional (laughs) stuff. What level of intimacy do they have within our organization, within their existing customers? How strongly self-orientated are they? Got it. Because that should raise an alarm bell. Mm -hmm. The reality is that if you're going to create a partnership with procurement, uh, you need to be timely, you need to be relevant, you've got to bring value, and you have to have done your research. So I'm guessing quite a lot of the work that you guys do involves fairly deep research. Not so much research. So a lot of what I do is take the data that I have from working with those Fortune 500 companies, with enterprise companies, right? And I know based on that experience what the expectations are going to be. So I think what you're talking about is, you know, if is it a nice to have or is it a business critical piece of software, right? And if it's business critical, it is going to be more strategic. So if it's more strategic, you're going to want to have somebody who is well-financed, right? Or so well-capitalized, well-insured, you're going to want to have certain service levels. So you're going to want to have certain, you know, uptime commitment. You're going to want to know if it's down, how fast they'll bring it back up. That's the that's the kind of stuff when it's more critical, business critical to the, to the buyer. That's going to make the well, it's going to make the the contracting process certainly more in depth than a kind of okay. nice to have piece of software. That, well, that makes sense. So it, it, effectively, what you've got is realistically a minimum of six months, which if you tag it, uh, six weeks, which if you tag it on at the end, will mean that you've probably wet your powder because you probably can't resist the temptation to tell the world that you've landed a a contract when in fact you haven't because you haven't got ink on paper. So That's exactly right. What goes horrifically wrong at that point? (laughs) Well, so first off, a lot of organizations will prohibit you from announcing, right? Because you'll be subject to confidentiality obligations. So oftentimes, particularly larger organizations that are very brand-centric are going to be hesitant to allow you to make the announcement in the first place. But I've seen deals that, I mean, I've been on deals that have been six to nine months long and that tank. Because the parties can't agree on something like how much insurance you're going to carry or whether you can use their their logo on a website. I had one deal, literally, we were working on it for nine months. And 
this was not a particularly early stage company, but they were newly into SaaS. So they're, they'd offered sort of on-prem software previously. And so they brought in an attorney to work on their deal and the attorney, the attorney killed it. Like the attorney killed the deal because the attorney wasn't aware that the limitation of liability provision that he was asking for was not market. It wasn't a huge contract for the seller, but it had huge upside because the buyer was bringing it in on a very trial basis. They were paying for it, but they're bringing it in on a limited basis. And they had the, the intention to increase usage significantly, but they couldn't quite see the long view. The, the seller couldn't. And the attorney basically blew up the deal by wanting a limitation of liability that wasn't in line with the data that the, the seller was handling. So again, it sounds to me like there's no real substitute for forward thinking and planning because many of these issues can either be prevented or avoided or at least planned for. Yes, absolutely. I think the thing is, and not to disparage lawyers, because I would be disparaging myself, but the challenge I think is, is a lot of contracts for sellers. So first of all, I understand that buyers are always working from worst case scenario, right? They've got their, if you're working off buyer paper, their contract will literally start from the worst case scenario. It will start with you're handling the most critical and confidential data, business critical, the business shuts down if if your if your uptime isn't 100%, you're handling super personal information. They start from the worst case scenario. The challenge is, and I think this is really where the crux of the problem is, right? So the seller starts similarly, right? They get a great contract that is ironclad at protecting themselves. The challenge is You've got two now ironclad agreements for protecting the organization, which doesn't make a sale, right? So you're starting from like worst case scenario and how do we move to the middle? Where if you know where the middle is, you can you can start there, right? Like you, you know, okay, this is the kind of data that I handle. This is how critical I am to the organization that I'm selling to. That we know what that market data is. We know what the market expectations are. So if you start with an agreement that's designed to sell as, a, as opposed to designing to protect yourself, and which, which is not to say that you're flying loose and free, right? But it is, first off, I, I don't know what the data is on this, but it, in terms of like actual numbers, but these are not agreements that get litigated a lot. People are not blowing up companies because breach their contract not a software contract. So uh, again, I think what I've heard here is that it's your job to try and find the common ground that allows both sides to reach the outcome that they want with the least amount of friction. And identify the gaps so that they can be readily and quickly filled. Correct. Okay. That makes sense. So... What does legal care about? How are they measured? How are they scrutinized? How are they judged? So if you're talking about buyers legal, right? Enterprise organizations, 
And this is something that we really encourage our, our customers to think about is think about the lawyer on the other side as another persona in part of the deal. And really, they're doing what I call triage law. They play not to lose. Yes, but what they're really trying to do is get the stuff off their desk, right? Because they, they have a ridiculous amount of volume and are, of course, under-resourced, right? So the buyer's lawyer really doesn't care if you sell your software. The only people they care about are their internal clients, of which they have two, actually. So they have the, the business team and they have their own lawyer supervisor. But what they really want to do is just like, they, they want to get it off their desk. So if you think about what's motivating the buyer's lawyer, that can help you also sort of move the process along a little bit better. A lot of customers, a lot of sellers believe that they're sort of like helpless when it comes to the buyer's review. And, and the fact of the matter is they can really do a a very effective job facilitating the process and by facilitating it, making it much faster too. So things like making sure the lawyer has, well, one, get an introduction to the lawyer, right? I mean, when I was working with Fortune 100 companies, a lot of times I never even talked to the seller. Make sure you get introduced to the lawyer. Make sure that you are involved in every email between the lawyer and your, your team. Make sure your lawyer the lawyer understands what your what your software does. Make sure they understand the kind of data that you're handling. Make sure that you know, that they know that you are available to answer any questions. Okay, <clears throat> that's really interesting. So what's the interplay, if any, that you typically come across between legal and procurement? In my experience, procurement really handled more the commercial terms, right? And they kind of ran the deal with respect to making sure that they had budget and authority to spend the amount that they were spending. Depending on the the software, they may take a look at what's being used across the landscape and how does this fit with the other pieces of software that we're using. They don't really get involved in the in the legal process. Sometimes they'll lead the deal so so that buyer's lawyer will hand the paper to the and I don't mean physically, of course, but hand the paper to the procurement lead and the procurement lead will act as the negotiator, which is okay. But I still think you want to do what you can to make sure that all the parties involved in the transaction are included on all the communication. So if you can get direct introduction to the buyer's legal reviewer, I would do it. I would encourage it. Okay. So how far does one go with that though? Because in Mm -hmm. a complex enterprise sale, there could Mm -hmm. be a dozen people on the buyer's team and then lots of moving parts on your team. So how do you prevent yourself from just becoming an email nuisance. You're spot on that there's a really fine line there. So I would encourage the same empathy that a a salesperson uses with their business team, that they apply that same empathy with the legal team. And if you know, if you know somebody's doing 
100 transactions a week. You understand that your deal may not be the most important thing that the buyer's legal team is looking at. I think you let the lawyer lead the review. I wouldn't be checking in daily. I actually worked on a deal with a software company that is, you would probably recognize them. They do financial software, big public company, but the sales guy was literally calling me and then calling my boss every two hours to get a deal closed. And I got to tell you, <laughs> that's just not where you want to go, right? I've had people call me. I've had, I've had salespeople call me at nine o'clock at night at home on a Friday. That's not a way to ingratiate yourself to, to the other team. And that is not a way for you, you to get prioritized review. I think if you make it known that you are available and you're there to help, whatever you need, I'm here to help. That's the best you can do. You really want to make sure that you're not an annoyance because that'll that'll get you at the to the bottom of the pile pretty quickly as opposed to the top of the pile where you want to be. And how, that will that that's valuable advice. How much weight does executive sponsorship have in terms of driving the legal process? A lot. A lot. So if it's a deal that has if we're talking about a transaction that has high visibility among the executive team, that's a pretty sweet spot to be in if you're the seller, because it will definitely get prioritized. Okay. And if you hit a bottleneck within legal, what tips can you advise in terms of unblocking it? This is where you really want to use your business team. So your business team typically is, is you've already you already have an advocate in your business team, right? They want your software. This is where I would encourage your business team to, again, not annoy the lawyer, but to facilitate the transaction by saying, you know, asking your business, your user team, what can we do to, to expedite? What kind of information do you need? How can I help? You know, and getting the business team to put a little pressure on the lawyer is, is a lot more effective than putting the pressure on the lawyer yourself. Understood. Okay. So you talked about stacking, or a lot of mm -hmm. people are familiar with the concept of multi-threading. How does one go about developing that plan so you choreograph the parallel conversations correctly? This is where I would use your business team again. So the first thing I would do is, a lot of times, sellers negotiate price before they even see the legal terms. Even in an RFP process, right? Even in a more formal RFP process, often, sometimes you're getting, these are our security requirements, but very infrequently are you getting the legal terms. So I always advise our customers to make any pricing offer predicated on substantial agreement with material terms. So I actually recommend that people use a term sheet or a summary of terms, right? Very similar to when they're doing their series A, B, C, whatever, that you have a tier sheet. These are, these are terms and they're not legally binding, but this is, you know, the deal is predicated on substantial agreement with these terms. If you can't, if that doesn't work, I would suggest getting the buyer's paper. Can you get a copy of your standard agreement for me? And 
reviewing what those standard terms are. So you know, okay, this is the buyer is going to expect $5 million worth of professional insurance, right? Then you know, oh, I don't have $5 million worth of professional insurance. So I'm going to have to procure that. And that's going to add costs. And then you can know that you can increase your price if necessary to accommodate the additional expense. How open are legal departments to having conversations with the sales team? Because if they're that pushed and they're effectively a production line, I'm curious what latitude a seller has to engage in a conversation to maybe challenge whether the five million is necessary. I think they're open. Typically, the way we see that get challenged is in the red line process, right? So if I'm buyer and I'm requiring you to work off of my paper, I'm going to just send you my paper. It's not going to be customized to the deal. I'm going to let you do that, right? So understand that really what's happening is this volume of work that the buyer's attorney is dealing with now gets shifted to the seller, right? So they say, okay, here's our template and require you to customize it, which is is what you're doing when you start your redlining. You can definitely push back and you push back, you know, $5 million isn't appropriate. It's not appropriate. It's And it's not appropriate for, for many, many software sellers. And the buyer's lawyer will recognize when it's not. Okay, interesting. Where else can vendors eliminate friction to make it easier for buyers to buy? In the contracting process. Well, the contracting right? Process. Yeah. The first thing really, honestly, is you've got to have good software in terms of it's got to be very secure. The last thing your buyer wants is to be the subject of a New York Times article because there's been a breach, right? Especially if it's like their customers' data that's been breached. So starting with solid software that's very secure and understand like, you know, I think people say not um, if you're going to be hacked, it's like when you're going to be hacked. (laughs) So, you know, having the systems in place to deal with that when it happens. And then I think there is an opportunity and for buyers to, sorry, for sellers to encourage the use of their paper. So rather than shifting the burden of the redlining from the buyer to the seller, starting with seller paper, which is more appropriate to the deal, right? Remember we talked about in the beginning, we talked about how the buyer's paper is going to be worst case scenario. My paper should be reflective of my software, my pricing model, my licensing model, the data that I handle. So it should be right size for my software. If I start with a contract that is accessible, and by accessible, I mean it is written in plain English, it's organized, it is written in active prose, it is eliminating as much Latin (laughs) jargon as possible, it is you know, eliminating prepositional phrases. If you start with what I call an accessible contract and you encourage the buyer, and this is where, again, where I would use the the buyer's business team, you encourage the buyer to review your, your agreement. I think you can be successful here. And I think this is a huge piece of 
eliminating the weeks that it takes to redline. Buyers' lawyers are not unreasonable, right? They may seem unreasonable sometimes, but if you get a buyer to say, if you, you, know, you get your buyer's business team to say to your lawyer, to the buyer's lawyer, look, these are, this is a um, early stage technology company. They don't have the resources that we do. They believe if you just take a glance at their agreement, that you'll find that you can get through it as easily and as quickly as you do our own paper. So I think that would be, that's a huge part of the hurdle. Excellent. Okay. So you're eliminating friction through the legal process. You're multi-threading or stacking the conversations in parallel. You're getting ahead of likely obstacles by raising them or stipulating them early. So if you're doing that, then what are the red flags that one should look for where a buyer is not playing fair so that you don't end up being victimized by the process? If the buyer is not willing to work off your paper, this is where we would encourage the seller to have a playbook, right? So first and foremost, understand we're not a legal, we're not a law firm. And we make sure your tools are vetted by a lawyer, but we believe, we actually, you know, one of our phrases is more business, less legal. And we believe that absolutely every decision that's made in the redlining process is a business decision. And if the seller understands the sort of legal ramifications of a provision, so if you understand what indemnification is, if you understand what limitation of liability is, and this isn't rocket science, right? It's, it just needs to be explained in plain English. And if somebody has a, we say, you know, you should be a student of contracts. That doesn't mean that you need to go to law school. It just means, you know, maybe you get some training and you understand what each provision means and you understand what happens if the provision gets triggered, right? What happens if the limitation of liability provision gets triggered. But if you understand that stuff, then you can make a business decision in response to what your buyer's red lines are. So if the buyer says, I want unlimited liability in the event of a security breach, and you know, is that reasonable or is that not reasonable? So we encourage our customers to have a solid working understanding of the legal ramifications and then we also encourage them to capture institutional knowledge. So we'd start with a playbook. These are the provisions. Here are fallback provisions. These are why our fallback provisions are what they are, right? So if we'll only agree to one and a half times a limitation of liability, that's one and a half times the fees that the buyer has paid. What's our fallback? What if the what if the buyer comes back and says, I want 10x? Are we willing to move? What's the risk of moving off the one and a half to 10x? And then the other thing is like if you are consistently moving off your standard provision, it, again, this is something we encourage our customers to track. Track and audit. Are you moving off your, your standard provision? If you're moving off your standard provision, why? And what are you moving to? And then if 90% of the time you're moving off your standard provision, probably need to change your standard provision. 
because your standard provision is not reflective of what the market is requiring. So we encourage work off your paper if you can. If you can't, then you've got to have a playbook. And your playbook needs to have fallback provisions and you need to have a working understanding of what each provision means in your contract. And honestly, we believe that our customers should be able to do this themselves. Okay. That's really, really interesting. Okay. So what I'm seeing happening more and more, it's not commonplace, but it's definitely on the up, is collaborative outcome-based pricing. Not necessarily for the full fee, but where a vendor shares some of the risk and gets their upside payment when the customer achieves their outcome. What advice would you give to organizations that are looking at adopting that kind of shared risk model in order to ensure that they got paid when those milestones were hit? Right. Well, I like that model personally, because I think when you have skin in the game, you're more likely to to pay attention, you know? And so I, I like that model. I would make sure that I have as much control as possible so that I can ensure that we meet the milestones. I would want to make sure that the the variables that are at play are something that we can control as much as possible, right? So, and I would make sure also that that the customer, the buyer, has motivation to be responsible and accountable for their part that you don't want to get into a situation where you're waiting for the buyer to do what they're supposed to do and you're going to fail because the buyer isn't doing what they're supposed to do. Yeah. So it's really about creating that mutual accountability. Absolutely. And aligning what you're going to deliver with their outcome so that mm-hmm. they have the motivation to play their part, which means yes. that you then get your payout. How, how do you make sure that it's policed well? So trust but verify, to quote Ronald <laughs> Reagan. I love that you're a dude from the UK quoting a, a, an American cowboy. <laughs> uh, I think it really depends on what what the the relationship is. Often I think this is where it gets to be a little challenging to be a lawyer, actually, right? If you're a lawyer papering the deal, because the business teams have an understanding of what they're going to do together, right? But often they can't translate that into those kinds of responsibilities and accountability checks in a way that that's you know legally sound, I guess. Again, this is where I think I would rely on the business team, make sure that the business team has a good working relationship with the other business team, make sure on the buyer's team that you have a project manager and you have a, an escalation process, right? So if the project manager isn't getting this done, who do I go to? So you know that on the customer side, there's somebody who is accountable for the project and that they have access to It's always going to be reasonable access, (laughs) but access to people that need to make the decisions if they don't have the ability to make the decisions themselves. And so, again, for those of you who've listened to the podcast for the last couple of years, you know I bang on about the critical importance of understanding who is in the decision-making unit. 
where authority and final power lie, who the sub-decision makers are, influencers, recommenders, specifiers, technical buyers, user buyers, financial buyers, legal buyers, who dots the I's and crosses the T's. You've got to map out the contingency plan for if everything doesn't go according to plan, what are the triggers? What are the alarm bells? What are the early warnings? And how do you escalate? To whom? What's their preferred mode of communication? And what's the turnaround time that you've agreed? And when you consider that you're not just selling the transaction, you're effectively opening the door to lifetime sales with that customer. It's worth putting the time in for the planning and preparation and making sure that your legal team, at least their mind is put at rest, that you've covered off all the bases. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. There are times, and again, it depends on what you're selling and how critical it is to the company, right? There are times where it's going to be really hard to access the sometimes purchases are subject to financial processes that you may have a hard time getting to. So I know in a couple of different organizations that I uh, worked with formally, if a transaction exceeded a certain threshold, sometimes 500K and other companies, it was a million, they have to go through like a, a committee review and those had to be scheduled and on the calendar, but you, you're probably not going to get access to the committee. But I've seen where executives of one team have a working relationship with, I don't mean like they work together, but I mean, they know each other professionally and will pick up the phone and call the, the VP or whatever at the other side and, and say, you know, no, we need to get this done or this is what it needs to look like. So I've definitely seen people run the the transaction up the chain of command, if you will, and leverage those those executive relationships at times. Excellent. Okay, Karen, we we've come to the uh, almost the top of the hour. No way! That was so fast. I know it's gone really <laughs> quickly. Um, so <laughs> tell me this: you've got a golden ticket, and you can go back uh-huh. and advise the idiot Karen, age twenty three. We thought she was invincible and immortal and knew everything. <laughs> what one bit of advice would you give her that she'd have probably? It's funny. It's funny because I was having this conversation, sort of with a, a, a version of this conversation with my 21 year old son last night. It was like, yeah. if you had somebody drop 10 million, and I mean net, not gross, like you've already paid the taxes, right? 10 million in your in your lap today. What would you do? Right. This is kind of the same question. I'm not going to tell you his answer because I think it was a 21-year-old answer. (laughs) Um, But I would say to my 23-year-old self, I would say, realize that you have options and understand that sometimes what you think is a hard choice isn't in the long run the hard choice. It may be briefly painful, but worse than sort of like this nagging pain that you may have for the next 30 years, if that makes sense. (laughs) Okay. So what are you wrestling with? What are you struggling with at the moment? I think the pandemic has 
caused a lot of us to be a little bit more introspective and, or maybe it's just because I'm getting, you know, to be at that age where you have the, I'm past middle age, but you have the proverbial crisis, if you will. So I'm having a little bit of an existential crisis, like who am I and what do I want to be when I grow up? And, (laughs) um, (laughs) but what I'm really, really struggling with is the difference between the haves and have nots and the the have nots have so little and the haves have so much. And, you know, when, when CEOs are paid $10 million just to, you know, a signing bonus of $10 million, to me, that's just gross. Would I like to have more money than I do? Yeah, I would, but I just don't even know why that much money is necessary and what you do with it. You know, maybe it'd be different if I had that kind of money, but it's just the huge disparity, I think. And, and you know, when you're looking at people who can get vaccinated and then those who can't get vaccinated because they have to work two jobs and they don't have childcare and how do, how do they get to the doctor to get the vaccination and that kind of stuff. And, and then I think we're seeing it at a global level, right? Like I have a very good friend in Mexico who is telling me the same story there that, you know, you can pay money to skip to the front of the line but if you don't have the money to pay, then you're, you know, you're waiting around for it. And it's that gross kind of disparity that is really challenging for me. I can certainly empathize with that. When it comes to CEO compensation, what I'd be really curious about is what contribution are you expecting them to add right. to justify that $10 Because if we were looking at a marketing budget, they'd probably be expecting 4X uh, mm-hmm. back in the tent. Right. So yep. what, what's the multiplier that one expects to sign someone at 10 million? Yeah. And by when? Well, you know, how many employees can you pay a living wage if you reduce that a little bit? It's a fair it's, question. You know, when you have people working for you who are not making a living wage, that just seems grossly unfair to me. I don't know. It's very Maybe un-American. It's, my feeling is very un-American. Yeah, yeah you could almost yeah. be European. <laughs> Maybe that's not a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Thank you for that. Okay, so tell me, what, what would you recommend people read, watch, listen to, to become more au fait with the whole area of contracting? Wow. Well, honestly, there's not a lot of material out there uh, that that talks about how to be better at redlining, I guess. There's just not a lot of material out there. I mean, we are write some of our own material, but it's not something that you're gonna read over the weekend. It's something you're gonna read in half an hour or something like that. And certainly I'd be happy to to pass that along. So Karen, how can people get hold of you? You can certainly find me on LinkedIn. It's Karen with an I, K-A-R-I-N. McCurcher, M-C-K-E-R-C-H-E-R. So I'm on LinkedIn. You can also email Karen, again, with an I, at 22, and it's T-W-E-N-T-Y, numeral two, dot group. Those are probably the two easiest ways to get a hold of me. Excellent. Karen McCurcher, thank you. Thank you. It was lovely being here. Excellent. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this an interesting and insightful conversation, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you know someone who's consistently struggling at the contracting phase, 
then please do either comment or get in touch directly with Karen. I also recommend that you check out a chap called Stuart Pyle, P-Y-L-E, who is a specialist in the RFP world, and Jill Robbins and uh, Mark Schenkius, both of whom teach you how to sell to procurement and make them your strategic ally. And I think all three or four of uh, these different approaches are critically important. And you should probably listen to the interviews done with all of them because they tie up all of that stacking conversation together. And it's so critical. There is no point getting to the finish line and then choosing to shoot yourself in the foot. <laughs> so if you want to get hold of me, Marcus at laughs-last.com or direct message me. And in the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.